cheese, wine, and bread. This week, it's all about fermentation with author Katie Quinn. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Each week we explore this great big world of food, and this week it's three of my favorite topics, cheese, wine, and bread. My guest is Katie Quinn, author of Cheese, Wine, and Bread, Discovering the Magic of Fermentation in England, Italy, and France. I discovered Katie through her YouTube channel, Q Katie, where she talks about the culture shock of moving to Italy and her new home in Puglia. Makes lots of great dishes and bakes with sourdough, too. Then I found out Katie had a new book coming out, so I knew I had to get her on the podcast. Katie talks with me about not finding cheddar cheese in Italy, an unfortunate cheese shop incident, and she reveals her Mount Rushmore of cheese, at least as it stands today. Katie also harvests grapes and has a celebratory lunch with the locals in Italy, and she tells us about the difference between champagne and Prosecco and why Julia Child is a badass. That's a lot of stuff to cover, and it's a real fun conversation. Katie and I laugh quite a bit, and I think you will too. But first, if you've missed any of the 120-plus episodes of Destination Eat Drink, you can get them all for free at radiomisfits.com. That's Sicily for free, France for free, India for free, and so much more. Destination Eat Drink. Katie Quinn, congratulations on your new book. It's called Cheese, Wine, and Bread, Discovering the Magic of Fermentation in England, Italy, and France. Before we jump into the meat of all this great food and drink, <laughs> let's talk about what fermentation is. Because I think folks know, or they, they think pickles when they think of fermentation. Maybe they think of wine, but I don't think they have an idea of the expansiveness of fermentation. So tell us what fermentation is. Yeah, totally. Like, that's just it. You hit the nail on the head. Um, and hi, Brent. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm stoked to be here. Um, fermentation is so many things that we don't even realize. Our coffee is fermented. Our chocolate that we love so much to eat is fermented. Of course, wine and beer, but it goes so much further than the kimchi and the kombucha hmm. that, uh, you know, that might be the first thing that comes to people's minds. Um, your buttermilk in, in your fridge that you use to make those, you know, buttermilk pancakes or scones. That is, that is fermented. That, that is clabbered is the technical term for when milk does that kind of like halfway between like a milk and a cheese. Um, but that is, that is a fermented item. Your tagline is keep it quirky. So Katie Quinn, what is quirky in your world? <laughs> quirky is unusual in a fantastic way. It is, it is fully embracing weirdness it is <laughs> and and just <laughs> basically owning curiosity and an adventurous exploratory spirit that i think is within all of us and just running with it and not being too hard on ourselves um keeping it quirky to me means keeping it light keeping it fun just basically not taking things so so seriously 
Like not everything we do is is life or death. And, and we need to remember that. One of the reasons I do this podcast is because I love going down these rabbit holes and, you know, yes. where is it going to lead me? Where, where are we going to end up? So let's go down the rabbit hole first of cheese. This is the first section of your book. And um, you've got experience because you worked at a uh, goat milk cheese place in England. You've been a cheesemonger in London. For you, Katie, what are some of your tips for finding the best cheese? If you're telling someone, okay, here's what I look for. This is like a very personal thing. So what I look for might not be what I would suggest other people look for. My first my first bit of advice would be to taste a lot. Taste a lot of everything. Taste things that you have never heard of that you don't know what they are because knowing what you like and what you don't like is the first step to enjoying cheese. So, and in order, of course, to know what you like and don't like, you need to try the whole gamut. So that's my first bit of advice is to just try new things and, and to ask. So when you go into a cheese shop, cheesemongers are the people behind the slate, right? Like when you go to a kind of fancy cheese shop, not at the grocery store, of course, um, <laughs> that's a different thing. Although, heck, go to the grocery store and get all kinds of cheese. But a cheesemonger is someone who's obsessed with cheese and they want to answer all of your questions about cheese. So ask them, don't be intimidated. Ask them all the questions and then just try. You know, my, uh, my manager at this cheese shop that I worked at in London, he told me the only way that you can learn about cheese is by tasting. And that's why at the shop, we were encouraged to taste with the customers. So when someone would walk in, we would offer, try this, like with, <laughs> with, with some cheese at the end of Katie, I can see some ulterior motives here. It's like, okay, try this because really I want to try this. <laughs> uh, yeah, you kind of you kind of hit the nail on the head. I mean, it is true though. So we would hand them something and then we would have a bite and we would talk about it. Like, what are what are you tasting? Do you like this? Do you not like this? And it was always really sometimes would not like the cheese they put in their mouth and would actually spit it out into their hand. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that was always kind of awkward. And then sometimes, and then they didn't have anywhere to put it. So then they would hand it to us, and we would <laughs> throw it away and like wash our hands and be like, "Oops, that didn't go as planned." But that didn't happen very often. <laughs> so you talk about cheese being a personal thing, you know, what you like, yeah, what you don't like. So, very much. So let's let's talk about some of your favorites, some of your personal favorites. If you were to create a Mount Rushmore of your favorite cheeses, uh, maybe a soft cheese, a semi-soft cheese, and a and a aged cheese. What would be some of yours that could go on? Understanding that you know, there's probably a lot more um, that might be out there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is such a, such a great question. Um, and it's like the question I ask myself anytime I put together a cheese board because it's so hard. Because it's like oh, I want everything, but my Mount Rushmore. I mean. This is a really interesting question because I have, I moved to Italy about four months ago, a little over four months ago after living in England for three and a half years. Living in England completely blew my mind in terms of the cheeses there. 
from your Wensleydales to your Red Leicesters to your Cheshires to your Lancashires to the Stilton. I mean, Stilton would have to be on on my Mount Rushmore. Yeah. yeah. Um, as an aside, but the, but the thing I'm the thing I really want to get at here is that the cheese that I have missed and just just hankered for <laughs> that I can't source in Italy is cheddar, a good old block of cheddar. Oh no! And did you know that cheddar is was born in England? Yes, I I actually knew that, but I'm I'm a little shocked that there's no cheddar in Italy. I guess I've never looked I for cheddar too. being in Italy. <laughs> I never exactly. even thought well, of it. <laughs> right. And why would you? Because you have Asiago, you have Scamorza, you have Gorgonzola, you have Parmigiano Reggiano, you have incredible cheeses here. But you can't find cheddar. So I think right now I'm speaking from a place of like, ooh, what what would I give for a nice block of cheddar? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, but so, you know, cheddar is really a cheese that I, I really came to appreciate the intricacies of the complexities of and the history of when I was living in England. because So there's a town in Somerset in a, in a region in um, southwest England called cheddar and like that's the birthplace of cheddar and brent i feel like you might know a bit more about cheddar than a lot of americans who probably associate it with wisconsin that is so cool sorry i didn't really finish your question so i'll just i'll just okay my my mount rushmore there are four faces on mount rushmore correct that's right (laughs) (laughs) okay all right all right so stilton and cheddar are up there um i would say Baron by God, which is which is a brie style cheese, also made in England, um, which is just incredible. It can get kind of stinky, but not overpoweringly stinky. It's it's got this beautiful, beautiful mold covered rind, um, and it just melts. It just melts at room temperature, um, and it kind of gets yeah, it gets these like mushroomy flavors. It's really it's really beautiful. Um, if I want something a little stronger, I would go for a cheese called Saint Sarah, which anyone in England, like you, you have to get it. It's like this beautiful washed rind, stinky, stinky cheese. It's amazing. Um, I kind of put those in the same camp. Sorry. Okay. And then the last one is, is kind of similar to a cheddar in a way, although a different process in making it, but I love, um, French Comte. It's an alpine style cheese. It's a, it's a hard alpine style cheese. Okay. And it is aged cheese. Um, yeah, it's just epic. It's it makes the best grilled cheeses. Sounds great. Also, I can't get that in Italy either, so maybe that's not, this is <laughs> this, this is, is this just, is influencing your 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 um your choices because these are ones that you cannot find right now. So you're that's kind of, it. You're that's obsessing it. Could, over them a little bit. That's it. And I could give you a whole nother Mount Rushmore of just Italian cheeses, but we'll go with the ones uh, that I'm, I'm missing right now. How's that? <laughs> That's perfect. Um, let's talk, uh, let's move on to wine because in your section about wine, you tell a very evocative story about visiting the Camelli winery in Friuli, Italy, which is up in the Northeast corner of the country. What makes a uh, Camelli winery special to you, Katie? There is a small family-run winery, and in an industry that has turned so industrial, uh, of course, right? Uh, I'm not trying to place judgment on the fact that wine is is very industrial. Um, but the thing that's special to me about Comelli Winery is that they don't do things industrially. And when they do 
the harvest every year, La Vendemia, it is a community endeavor. And so I, I had the privilege of doing the Vendemia with them. And, and I just like, it was like hanging out with the village because it's, it's in this like, it's on a hilltop. It's a small village and people just came together and, and we clipped the grapes. And then we had basically this like celebratory lunch all together after a morning of working. And it's just so special and really different than how, um, than how vineyards tend to run on a professional level. You said two very important words in that last little piece about the winery. And those two words that I am interested in are celebratory lunch. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I would like to know what is served for a celebratory lunch after you have done your work out in the vineyard. Well, the main, the main dish was uh, bolognese. Um, is like a ragu bolognese, a meaty, meaty sauce uh, with pasta. That was kind of the main thing because we were needing our carbs. Um, and then a bunch of uh, basically bites like bruschetta, a lot of formaggio, a lot of um, just cured meats and and a lot of wine. Um, <laughs> there, <laughs> there were some uh, braised vegetables. Um, so a lot of contorni, like a lot of just kind of nibbles and then the main the main meaty pasta dish um, to give us sustenance after a morning of working. And it worked, I'm sure. And, and it works. And then And uh, of course bubbles. We had we had bubbles followed by bottles of red and white. So that was my next question. Um, this area of Italy is known for its Prosecco. Um, yes. Talk to me a little bit about uh, the Prosecco wines of the Friuli region. So what I think is fascinating is that Prosecco, <laughs> just like the uh, um, the semantics around Prosecco are are fascinating. So, are you familiar with prote protected designation of origin? Let's yes. This. But explain it for our listeners. Okay, so protected designation of origin. A great example that many people are familiar with is Champagne. So a a sparkling wine cannot be called champagne unless it was produced in the champagne region of France so very geographically specific and produced with like these very specific outlined um procedures of making this wine it's called the champenoise method of of making wine where its secondary fermentation is in the bottle this differs from how Prosecco is made, for instance, where its secondary fermentation is in the tank, and that's called the tank method. Um, but back to PDO, so only called champagne if it's made in champagne. And like with these certain rules, like check the, the boxes have been ticked off the list. So Prosecco is the same. That's fairly recently. Prosecco got this like huge boom. People started showing interest in Prosecco in Italy. And the lawmaking powers behind the wine industry in Italy were like, whoa, people are getting really interested in this wine. Paris Hilton in the early 2000s came out with her own canned wine, right. canned Prosecco. <laughs> and they were like, okay, hold up. There is money to be made here. And so they were like, we want to make this a PDO a protected designation of origin. In order to do that, though, the grape itself 
which was called a Prosecco. It was called Prosecco. You can't protect a grape with under this law of PDO, but you can protect a region. You can protect a production of something within a region. So what they did was they renamed the grape to the Lara grape. And and the story is so Italian to me. (laughs) It's so it is so Italian. It's hilarious and wonderful. And they made it happen. Not all Prosecco has to be made in this one town. They they have been able to widen it a bit. So it has to be from uh, Venezia. No, sorry, the Veneto region, which is where Venice, Venezia is. Um, Or Friuli, Giulia, Prosecco has to be made in those two regions in order to be called Prosecco now. I think this is so important, having these protected regions. And you see it all over Italy, not just for wine, but for all kinds of... There are cheeses, there are all kinds of things, um, agricultural products that are made in Italy that have this protection. But I think it's important for folks to know that this does not apply to the U.S. Mm -hmm. For example, um, hatch chilies have become extraordinarily popular in the U.S. in the last few years. And they are grown in a place called Hatch, New Mexico, and in the region around it. But when I lived in Austin, Texas, there were farmers around there who were growing chilies, and they called them Hatch chilies. There is no geographical protection for these these items. You can—I'm not sure if champagne extends to the U.S., but almost every other product— you can call it whatever you want in the U.S. There's no, mm-hmm. there's really no geographical protection for these products, which I think is a shame because it really helps to define the culinary and the cultural identity of a place when you have these special things. I think that there's probably an argument to be made on all sides of this, but honestly, I do, I do agree with you. I think that, I think it, yeah, because otherwise. Things that are actually quite different are called the same thing. And so I think it takes away from uh, the the specialness, for lack of a better word, of a given item if the same words are used to describe many different items that are actually quite distinct. Katie, let's talk about bread. And this is this is what makes your book so great because you focus on you talk about fermentation, but you focus on cheese, wine, and bread and I've said this on the podcast before. I would be happy with just having cheese, wine, and bread for <laughs> dinner. Maybe, maybe, just maybe a little bowl of olives. But other right, than that, yes. <laughs> I'm totally happy with cheese, wine, and bread. And I unapologetically say I've had this for dinner many, 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 many times and been perfectly yes. satisfied. Ditto, ditto. <laughs> you focus on bread in France. What makes the bread of France so special? Well, I mean, who doesn't think about bread when they think about France? I mean, a baguette <laughs> peeking out of a bag or um, held in someone's hand as they're walking the streets of Paris, that is such an iconic vision. And it's it's a vision for a reason. It's because it's true. It's still to this day, you visit Paris, you see people walking around with the baguette sticking out of their bag frequently with the tip bit off. The uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> it, The elbow of the baguette has been nibbled because it's the first thing people do as they're walking away from a boulangerie. Bread is France. France is bread. Like the two, it's a metonym. They are, they, they are equate each other in many ways and they define each other in many ways um the the history of bread in france 
is long and fascinating. I mean, think of the Marie Antoinette saying, let them, let them eat cake, which actually her words in French was, um, let them, brioche was the word she said. So brioche. So brioche. Not, not really what? cake. Yeah. It's not really cake. It's, it's a bread. It's kind of a cakey bread. <laughs> An enriched bread is what it is. Um, and so this goes way back. Bread helped trigger the French Revolution. Um, the world of bread in France is changing. And I think that's what made it so interesting because again, going to, going back to what I was saying about wine being industrialized, bread has become incredibly industrialized in this country that loves it so much and has valued its artisan aspects. And yet boulangeries are closing left and right. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are going for the ease and the, the economic choice of a, lower quality bread in in many cases um, off of the grocery store shelf. So I was like, there's something really juicy here and I really want to dig into it. I want to make bread with people in France um, to really find this out. And you did. I also, I have to say quickly, uh, one of my favorite quotes from Julia Child, and I start the bread section of the book with this quote because I think it's so fantastic. Julia Child said... Um, how can a country be called great if its bread tastes like Kleenex? <laughs> like, and that's such a French mentality. It's such a French way of thinking. So this is all to say that the French uh, value bread. However, the bread scene is is going through a lot of evolution right now. And I was like, now is the time to go to go scope this out. And and Julia Child is a badass. Is the other thing we can learn from and that. And Julia Child is a complete <laughs> badass. Oh, I love, I, I love that woman. I love the image of peeling that tip of the baguette off of the bread and eating it on your way home. Because my girlfriend, who's Italian American, she does the exact same thing. If we get a baguette, <laughs> she peels the she peels the top off. In the years that we've been together, I have never had the end of a baguette ever. Ah. <laughs> she always, like, even if we go to the grocery store and it's in a in a grocery bag in the back seat, somewhere between the grocery store and home, that little tip of the uh, baguette seems to disappear. Um, it's irresistible. It is, <laughs> and and she loves it uh, dipped in a little uh, marinara sauce. It's the perfect way to test if the marinara has uh, simmered long enough on the stovetop. Oh, that's beautiful. She's a true Italian American. Uh, de- yeah, definitely. I, res- I respect it. Katie, tell me a little bit about the uh, peasant bakers movement in France. So I I did a training with a peasant baker in Brittany, which is an area of northern France. And his name is Nicolas Supio. And he's actually one of the people who started this peasant baker trend, uh, Paison Boulanger. And the idea of it is essentially a farmer who has a farm, a fully functioning farm, and a part of this holistic ecosystem of the farm is growing wheat, milling the wheat, and making bread <laughs> with with the flour that you have milled. Um, so it's really, it's it's about an entire ecosystem of a farm. It's about connecting connecting yourself to the to the land where the wheat is grown. Um, it's so much in our current system these processes of how we get food on our table and in our mouth are divorced from each other. The person who bakes the bread, who who gets the flour from the miller, doesn't really know what was milled with it, doesn't necessarily understand. It's just got the flour in the bag. Mm-hmm. 
the miller doesn't necessarily know from the farmer how it was farmed. Were there pesticides used? In many cases, yes, because that's what the laws require in a lot of in a lot of cases. But anyway, so there's not much communication, and so the whole idea of a paysan boulanger is is to kind of do it all in one on principle, <laughs> on principle more than anything. I love this idea, and now I can say that when I was a gelato maker back in the day, <gasps> I no. was a peasant gelato maker because we had a little hobby farm and I used to grow things like uh, blueberries and strawberries and oh lemongrass even and all these uh, different oh, types of my things gosh. that I used to grow, harvest and use in our gelato. So <laughs> this is amazing. Wait, tell me more. Where where did you make this artisanal gelato? This is I started in uh Rhode Island. We had a we had a small little uh hobby farm in Rhode Island that was all hand tilled. And then I took the gelato operation to Austin, Texas, and I couldn't we had a little house with a little piece of property, so I couldn't grow a lot of the stuff, although I grew a lot of my own herbs. So I had to go out to farms in the hill country and pick strawberries and drive two hours to pick blueberries and, and things of that nature. But yeah, that uh, keeping it all within one single ecosystem, ver a vertical system, if you will, was very important for uh, making uh, gelato to me. Absolutely. And it makes, it really does make for a better end product, right? Like that's the, that's the, the really cool thing about all this. And when I was making cheese in England, when I was helping with the harvest and helping make the wine in the cantina in Italy, and when I was making bread in France, that was my biggest takeaway was like, wait a second, all these things are more delicious when they're produced in this way. Absolutely. That's the best takeaway from this, all this <laughs> research was like, hold up, this is actually more delicious and it's better for the community and it's better for the environment. This is all like such a win-win-win situation. Katie Quinn, thank you so much for being on the show and writing this terrific book, Cheese, Wine, and Bread, Discovering the Magic of Fermentation in England, Italy, and France. The book is now available. Folks should read it. I've read it. It's great. Yeah. Thanks, Brent. Yeah. I hope, I hope y'all like the book. <laughs> okay. There you go. Katie Quinn, her enthusiasm is contagious. I've got a link to her YouTube channel, her website, and where you can order her book in the show notes at radiomisfits.com. That's it for this week. Next week, we are talking coffee, coffee all over the world. Until then, I've got my blog where I post new stuff each week. This week, there's my recipe for a vegan chickpea salad. It's packed with tons of flavor. I make it all the time. It's super easy. Some people call it mock tuna salad, but I call it chickpea salad. That's it. DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and Fermenting King Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. Wear your effing mask. Get vaxxed. I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.